Hi, and welcome to another episode of Shining in the Gray. This is your host, Vanessa Rivera. On today's episode, we are going to catch up again with Rose Martin, but this time we're going to discuss parenting. It is one of her favorite topics to discuss, and you can tell by her enthusiasm and her energy. I am really grateful to Rose for her time, and I'm just so grateful that you're here. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Rose Martin. Coming off of our marriage podcast, which Mm -hmm. was super helpful, just really fresh perspective on ideas I'd heard before, but it didn't click until you worded it in your very fantabulous Rose way. So, Mm. I like it. Thanks. Now I need you to do your magic on parenting. How do we raise productive and helpful and evolved and mature adults? Wow, that's a big one. Well, in typical Rose fashion, I would say we raise productive, healthy, happy adults by making sure that we are also raising ourselves, Mm. that we are also elevating ourselves because parenting comes from the inside out, which makes it a really difficult job. And you cannot give to your kids that which you don't have for yourself. All awareness, all knowledge, everything that we hope to impart in our children, we really have to turn that, that, telescope in and look inward and we have to work on these things ourselves because at the end of the day and this is a really hard part about parenting I think kids do not necessarily learn from what we say they learn from what we do and Gandhi said be the change you wish to see in the world I say to paraphrase Gandhi or personalize it I always say be the change you wish to see in your kids Whatever you expect from your kids, elevate within yourself. So if I want more compassion in my kids, I strive to be compassionate. If I want them to be more kind, I strive for kindness. If I want them to be more patient, I strive for patience. Oftentimes, even now, when I see conflict in my home, the first thing I do is I look at my parenting blueprint. I look at the model and I ask myself, what is there anything I am doing or not doing that's contributing to what I'm seeing right now? We can't take responsibility for everything that goes on in our households, obviously, but there's a large part of it that we can take responsibility for. And so we raise our kids by raising ourselves. But it's really, I think that it's something that is a lot more challenging in the application than in just talking about. Yes, yes. But you know, I've come to realize in life that most things that are worthwhile Mm -hmm. are, there Mm -hmm. is no easy way out. There's no shortcut to any of this because it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It's about the process. So if we see it in terms of that, change is not revolutionary. Change is evolutionary. It's a step-by-step daily process. And we don't have to be the best at all times, but if we can just strive to be better day by day, or at least better than 
the week or the year or the month or the decade before, I'm not picky, you know, (laughs) then I think that that's progress. It's valuing progress over perfection, for sure. So it's not about becoming the perfect parent, but it's about just a personal journey in which you practice your self-awareness, you practice your self-discipline through self-care, and then eventually, step by step, one foot in front of the other, you start to resemble more of the person that you desire to be. You've read The Four Agreements, have you? No, and you know that we talked about this a year ago, two years ago, and it's still like the one book that I still just haven't read. I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly fucking reading, and I'm obsessed with every type of like growth book known to mankind. And And it's that's like a tiny little book. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's like an afternoon lunch date. You read the book. I mean, it's so so. I don't know if I shared this on the the last uh, podcast or not, but so for 12 years, you know, I, I work, I've had a contract, thank God, to the Children's Trust. So my work has been free for families, which is amazing because, you know, part of my background in community psychology, I really care about equity and people's access mm-hmm. and stuff like that to education. And sometimes certain groups of people have not had same access to education and counseling and all these services. So I'm really happy about that. For 12 years, I've worked in the homes, one-on-one with parents or families, caregivers, I should say, for six months at a time. And then I've done groups and the groups are 15 weeks long. And so I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of families. You can imagine over 12 years, all over Dade County. But one of the things that I started doing, I want to say like maybe three years ago was I would not even set up the initial consultation until you've read the four agreements. That's how much I think the four agreements, simple, four, basic, rudimentary principles to live and govern for personal freedom. That's how important it is to my work, I think. But one of the agreements, and hopefully you will read it, I, I have extra copies I can give to you, is to do your personal best. Mm-hmm. And I just live by that because especially as parents, our personal best changes, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes my personal best is a gourmet meal, and sometimes my personal best is cereal for dinner. And that's okay. It's whatever I can give in the moment. And so as we go through challenges in our lives, sometimes our personal best changes. It never has to be perfect, though. That's my point. It just has to be your best and whatever that looks like in the moment. And how does that translate? What does that look like when we are showing up as our, our most self-aware and more conscious selves as it relates to our children? Well, I think, I think it depends. There are seasons in my life as a parent where my personal best is I read a bedtime story every evening. And there are other seasons where my personal best is you get a five minute prayer and I'm out. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's, I don't know if there's 
one way to answer that. I just think that it's on a case by case basis, but I do know for me, a lot of what, a lot of what I strive to look like to my kids, it's somebody who's just really human. For me, like as long as I remain a student to my kids, to myself, humble, not afraid to make mistakes, apologetic, right? I own my stuff. There are times I've apologized to my kids plenty of times. Sometimes I've apologized four or five times in one day (laughs) for my behavior. And I always tell my kids, I always tell them like, and I'm very clear about this. I never apologize for my emotions. Your emotions are simply an expression of your experience. If I'm angry, I'm not going to apologize for that. If I'm hurt or sad or frustrated, I will never apologize for that. But I will apologize for behavior if I have to, right? So I can be mad, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I have an excuse to be mean, you know? So sometimes I'll tell my kids, I was mad. I was angry. I'm human. I'm entitled to that. But I should have handled it a different way and perhaps calling you outside of your name or slamming a door wasn't the best way to do it. Yeah. You know, those are markers for me. If I see that I'm not as apologetic or I'm not taking as much responsibility for things, I'm not being humble. If I'm not remaining a student, then I know something's off with my parenting game. Those are kind of my own markers. And we all know what our markers are, by the way. So if you're listening to this and even, Mm. and for you too, Vanessa, like you would ask yourself, what should my personal best look like right now? And can I notice a pattern when I'm not in my personal best? What am I not seeing? And be just be practice that awareness. Yeah, I think that's crucial is paying attention. I mean, even if the language of awareness and consciousness isn't something that maybe one of some of our listeners aren't familiar with or used to using. It's Mm -hmm. really just paying attention. As of now, I'm paying attention to my behaviors. I'm Mm -hmm. paying attention to how I behave throughout my day. And then once you get to that point where you're really getting to notice your behavior, then you Mm -hmm. start examining, well, let's see, what was the motivation behind that behavior? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a more practical way of describing awareness and consciousness, wouldn't you say? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is a lot of people, believe it or not, are not like, don't know this, but there is a difference between our behavior and our emotions, right? Like our actions and our feelings are two two separate things. And sometimes even just understanding, just having the awareness of that. Okay. I feel one thing, but I can choose. There's a choice. There's a freedom. And what I do with that feeling. And I'll never forget, I was teaching a group probably in the beginning. So this was maybe about 12 years ago. And at the end of it, asking parents, what, tell me a takeaway. What did you learn from this? And I'll never forget, there was an older woman and she was actually a grandmother. And one of the things she told me was she said, the most powerful thing I learned at the end of this is that I actually have a choice. I didn't know I had a choice. This behavior, this one particular action that I don't want to get into, but for her always 
preceded anger. And she sure. never thought about the fact that she could do something different. That violence and let's say anger don't have to be connected. Yeah. You know, you have a choice. Close, slamming the door in anger, right? Wow. Name calling in anger. I think first having that concept of, okay, there's a difference. I can't help my feelings, but I have a choice when it comes to my behavior and just practicing catching that, yeah. being, taking a pause when that happens and trusting your instinct too. We all have, even if we have this language or not, we all have our, our instincts about stuff and you know when you do something and it doesn't feel right it just sits in like the middle of your belly just a little bit and just you don't you might not even know why it's wrong but it's just there so I tell parents in the beginning just pay attention to that even if you forget everything I talked about the topic for this week pay attention to your gut reactions when you say or do certain things does it feel right in your gut or does it feel wrong? And if it feels wrong, that's okay, right? We're all students. I love how um, Rob Bell, I know you know Rob Bell too. Mm -hmm. He says that Liz Gilbert one time grabbed his hand and she wrote student on yeah, it. Yes. And I love that. And I, ha I don't always do it, but I had one particular group with a lot of uh, parents that had a lot of high needs. I remember that day I had them all write students yeah. on their hands. And I said, just throughout the entire week, you don't have to change anything different about yourself, the way that you parent, your interaction. I just want you to pay attention to your gut responses when you interact with your kids. Just pay attention to it and remember that you're a student. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how you start. You just start there. Yeah. At first, like anything uh, new or anything outside of our comfort zone, it feels awkward. And it feels mm -hmm. different and it feels uncomfortable mm -hmm. to pay attention and notice these things because mm -hmm. it tells us a truth about ourselves that we either have been ignoring mm -hmm. or just don't want to admit to. Right. But you see, there's, when you say that too, there's like a judgment behind that, right? Like they're like, it's, and it's hard not to think in terms of, of this because it's kind of the way that we've been conditioned and socialized but part of the therapeutic process like if you've worked with a clinician or any type of setting or whatever and that's one of the things that i i do especially in our groups is that i say we leave any judgment about ourselves about things that people say at the door and i know it's hard to do that because again we've been socialized to do so but when you understand human behavior, you see that there's always a reason for why we do the things that we do. There's Absolutely. just always a reason, right? Mm -hmm. So I encourage parents not to be hard on themselves or to encounter these things and then judge themselves or their own parenting blueprints that come from their parents or whatever it is, but just to say, you know what? I know better, I'm doing better for whatever reason. There could be a million reasons why I chose to react or be this way. And it doesn't even matter why, it just matters what I choose to do going forward. Because we all have a reason for why we do the things that we do. Sure. I think that I can see why perhaps 
being uncomfortable with our reaction or uh, not wanting to admit to a pattern might seem judgmental. I don't think that discomfort is a judgment call. Right. Right. Yeah. I, as, yes, I, I agree. You're absolutely right. So it's, if you're uncomfortable, right, that's just a feeling like there's right. no, it's no right or wrong. Sure. Just, I, I was thinking that you were, you were alluding to maybe like people are uncomfortable because they don't want to, like maybe they're judging their reality in that mm. moment and they don't want to sit in that. Yeah. But if, 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 if you weren't saying that, then yes, I totally agree with you. Like, It is, but it's another thing that reminds me of speaking of parenting that we do sometimes is, so we've been socialized that certain emotions are good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. And I said earlier that emotions are simply expressions of a human experience. So they're neither good nor bad. They just exist as they are. And part of the reason why we've labeled certain emotions as bad is because Things like feeling frustrated or feeling uncomfortable. Our parents, our caregivers, our teachers, you know, our church leaders, all the people around us growing up have taught us that there's something wrong with being uncomfortable. There's something wrong with sadness. There's something wrong with being frustrated or afraid. And in actuality, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just being human and learning to, even with my own kids, when they're uncomfortable or they're afraid, I don't, even though it goes against my own instinct as a parent, I don't naturally try to rush them out of the emotion. Mm-hmm. They can sit with it. And I've taught my kids and I've taught this, if, if, but we talk about how, how our emotions are like the weather right? And they change. You can go outside one moment and it's rainy and stormy. You can go outside one minute later and the clouds have parted and it's the most beautiful sunshine and it's hot. And so our emotions are the same way, right? Like they come and go. So yes, you can be uncomfortable. You can sit in that discomfort, but it's not going to last forever. And eventually that discomfort, if we pay attention to it, has a message for us, right? We listen to the message, we accept whatever it comes with, and then maybe afterwards we feel peace or relief, but our joy returns to us. That's one thing that kids do really naturally well, by the way. They let joy return to them. They don't Mm -hmm. sit. You know, like my my four-year-old, I have three kids, my youngest, I love watching her because if she gets hurt or something and I'll say, what can I do? Can I help? And she'll say, can I have a kiss? And I kiss it. And just like magic, she's smiling again. She returns to joy, right? Mm -hmm. Like she returns to that natural state. Kids do it wonderfully. So-and-so's being mean. They're not my friend. And then you say, well, tell them how you feel. They tell the person the next moment they're playing together, they're laughing. They don't hold on to sorrow the way that we do, that that we forget to do that. We don't return to joy. They do it naturally. And I love that about them. What do you think it is that happens within us as we grow older that makes us lose that emotional resiliency? Um, I think it's socialization. 
Mm. It's the way that we are taught. So I'll use this as an example that I use often in my group. So anger is a secondary emotion. It usually, um, whenever we see anger, what comes out is anger. It's really covering up either fear, frustration, or pain. And so when we don't deal adequately with pain or hurt, when we don't deal adequately with our fears for whatever reason, maybe there's shame attached to it, or our frustration, anger is what happens as a result. Why don't we deal with our fear, frustration, and hurt? Well, it's because those emotions make us feel vulnerable. Why do we feel vulnerable with those emotions, right? Like, why do we express joy easier? Well, growing up, think about your experiences. Let's say you're playing with a puzzle and you're frustrated that you can't put two pieces together because your prefrontal lobes are not even fully developed, right? There's yeah. no logic there. You're reptilian. And so you show frustration and you get yelled at. What's wrong with you? It's just a puzzle, right? So think about the message you might tell yourself in that instance. Oh, well, when I'm frustrated, makes my mom angry or people yell at me. Think about when you're little and you express fear. Maybe you were afraid of a movie you saw, or you were afraid that there was a shadow in your room, and even it's a teddy bear, but in a really dark light, it looks really scary. So you tell a sibling, or you tell a cousin, or you even tell your parents, and maybe you're laughed at. Maybe you're yelled at. Maybe it's minimized. It's not a big deal. That's nothing. What are you doing? Go back to sleep. I'm tired. And this is not a judgment towards our parents. Of just course. being human, right? Yeah. So- What's the message then you learn about fear over time? Mm -hmm. People don't believe me. They laugh at me when I'm afraid. They minimize it. Same thing with hurt or pain. Let's say your best friend moves away or your absolute favorite stuffed animal in the whole wide world is suddenly lost at the laundromat. You're sad. And a caregiver tells you, it's just a toy. What's the big deal? You're sad over that. That's nothing. Imagine I have bills to pay. You should be, you know, like, you know, all these things that we hear. Mm -hmm. So what are the messages you get about expressing hurt or pain? And so over time, when you're bombarded with these, with these images or not these images, but these reactions mm -hmm. to those three emotions, you learn to hide them. You learn to conceal them. And what comes out instead is anger. And yeah, so or a I myriad of other behaviors. Or, right, right. Because <laughs> even when anger is not dealt with, yeah. then there's rage and there's anxiety. I mean, it, it's a lot of, there's stress, whatever. But sure. the idea is that it's really through socialization. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean, you know, it's the whole nurture and nature thing, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it's how it's, it's how these things are nurtured. And in our culture, and actually, I don't even know if I should say culture. I think in humanity in general certain emotions for whatever reason have, have received a bad rap and the things that make us feel vulnerable later on, we lose our emotional like resilience. Like you say, mm -hmm. it's harder for us to express those things. Even with my spouse, you know, when he's angry, when I see an emotion as anger or behavior that looks angry to me, I'll say, what are you really feeling? Hey, what's going on there? Are you feeling, you know, what are you, are you afraid? 
Are you frustrated? Is there something you're hurt about? And I'll challenge him behind that. And if every time I, we've done that together, there's always an underlying, an emotional vulnerability that he wasn't able to express. That's at the root of that. Mm-hmm. And it helps us get to things much quicker, by the way. Because if you see anger and you react in anger, which is a normal thing that we all do, of course, it's just you're kind of fighting fire with fire. But if you see anger and you're able to train or condition yourself to recognize that there's really a, a vulnerable emotion behind that and anger is just coming out as like the scary, loud, whatever, you know, protector, then you can get to the root of the anger much quicker. So what do we do like in the case, because we've given a lot of attention to anger. Mm-hmm. What our reaction isn't necessarily anger, but indifference or mm-hmm. numbing, for yeah. example. So these, so these are also behaviors that would be considered secondary as well, I would imagine. But those look very different to our children. So mm-hmm. how do we confront the patterns of indifference or the patterns of numbing in ourselves so that then we don't raise children who become indifferent or numb and can be empathetic and can be compassionate one day. Right. I think before I address that specifically, anything that you do not to confront or to manage or to deal with an emotion that makes you feel vulnerable Mm -hmm. is not the most ideal coping mechanism, right? So whether that's indifferent, apathy, Mm -hmm. numbing yourself, being angry, whatever that looks like, if you are avoiding the real emotion behind it, it's just less than ideal, right? Yeah, that's what creates the chaos within all of us. Yeah. Right. And that's what leads to the stress, the anxiety, the loss of connection, all of those things. There's a ripple effect. Now to answer your question directly, it just takes work, mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. right? That's it. Just practice, practice until, because here's the thing, whatever we practice, we master, mm-hmm. right? So you've practiced, and I mean you, not you, but oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. you in the general <laughs> sense, right? Like all of us, we practice hiding our emotional vulnerabilities for decades. So we're not going to overnight hear Rose or read a book Mm -hmm. or watch Super Soul Sunday with Oprah. And then the next day we've mastered something entirely new. No, we have to practice because whatever we practice, we master. So for me, this journey that I've been, first of all, I expect or suspect to expect to be practicing this for the rest of my life, right? Absolutely. But it is easy, it has become easier for me to master because hopefully I'm practicing doing, expressing my emotional vulnerabilities more than I'm denying them. Yeah. And so it, it does get easier, you know, mm-hmm. it really does. But it's just, again, change is evolutionary, not revolutionary. It's the day by day process, but it does get easier for sure. You just can't expect it overnight. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely a lifelong thing. So and you just practice it though, right? That's it. And I think something I want you said in the beginning that I kind of want to circle back to because I think it's true even now. You said something like in the relationship podcast, it was like stuff you had heard or read or whatever, but hearing it like this time, it finally clicked for you or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very important reality and all truth. So we can hear something that is universally true. You Mm -hmm. just know like that sounds right. But for whatever reason, and whoever you are, wherever you are in that season of your life, you're just not ready. Yeah. It's just not meant to be in that moment. And so you could even hear this and you can know the things that we're talking about. But until it's something that makes sense or clicks for you, and maybe it's a year from now, maybe it's a week from now, maybe even right now in this moment as you're hearing it something clicks, Mm -hmm. then in that moment, that's where you begin to practice, practice just doing something different. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it does become easier and you're able to master. I think, I think that it becomes easier in the sense that you build confidence in the practice, but I think in some, in some respects, it becomes more challenging because the deeper you go, the, the more you're able to excavate and the more there is to see about ourselves. And I think sometimes we're afraid of what we're going to find, but I don't think we're afraid of the junk as much as we're afraid of what our true self really looks like. It's like, it's too, mm-hmm. it's almost like blinding, you know? Mm-hmm. I think, I think maybe, it, maybe it could feel that way for some people, you know, for me, I'm excited about growth and journey. And I, you know, I will say though, I want to clarify the more emotionally vulnerable we are with ourselves, it's always a good thing because Mm -hmm. you learn to express your truth. You learn to listen to the messages within. And It's one of those things where let's say you don't deal with certain emotions that make you feel vulnerable and you just sweep it under the rug, right? You think if I don't manage it, it'll go away. And in actuality, whatever you don't confront, confronts you. Whatever you don't deal with, deals with you. So whatever you don't manage, manages you. So you think by not dealing with it, it's easier, but it's coming up. It's, you know, it's, garbage that eventually piles and spills over. So you end up paying a price for it in the long run. So I think it's, you know, you might like the, the learning to express yourself and listen to your emotional vulnerabilities, even just to yourself, immediately you will start seeing positive consequences from that because you're being honest with yourself. And you're able to manage and confront things that otherwise, just by ignoring, are managing and confronting you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to that point where if you don't accept the lesson in that moment and confront your mm-hmm. shit, the lesson's going to come back harder and stronger and bigger yeah. because yeah. like the whole world is conspiring 
so that mm-hmm. you can grow and so that you can yeah. evolve and so that yeah. you can change for the better. At least I truly believe that in my heart of hearts. And I think so many times we have these challenges that we keep coming up against. It's the same wall over and over and over again, but we keep doing the same exact thing mm-hmm. in order to get through it. But you never do because you get the same fucking wall every single time. And until you're willing to find that third way of doing mm-hmm. things, we, we're so stuck in the binary of thinking there's only two ways to do things, the right way, the mm-hmm. wrong way. And so I think that as we learn, then we get, you know, a new lesson to teach us mm-hmm. the next big thing. And I think that all of that works together to teach us compassion, like compassion for ourselves. And then by default, compassion for our kids, I would hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't be honest with other people or other relationships until you are honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's the truth of it. So if you practice honesty within, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I am behaving this way because I really feel this way. I don't know, but I know we all come with this internal dialogue, right? And this internal dialogue tends to be a little judgmental sometimes. And I know for me, my family, uh, Liz Gilbert says this, that like your family knows how to push your buttons because they are the ones that have installed all the buttons. (laughs) So... So, you know, growing up, I remember my family would say all the time, you're too sensitive, you're sensitive. So whenever I would, let's say somebody was mean to me, and I would want to cry, I would tell myself, right, the same dialogue I heard my whole life, don't be sensitive, you're sensitive, as if there's something wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I think, I don't know if it was in, no, it was before graduate school, but I remember, it was probably in some psychology class, that they were talking about how we have these, we have these, we have this internal dialogue that we accept as children. But part of the beauty of being an adult is that you get to change that internal dialogue. You can actually talk back to your own dialogue. Mm-hmm. So one day when I told myself, a friend didn't invite me for a play date. And I was like so hurt. And I was like, Rose, you're so sensitive. You're an adult. And then I stopped and I said, wait a minute. What's wrong with being sensitive? I don't see who told me that was wrong in the first place. I'm intuitive. I'm self-aware. I feel deeply. I have big emotions and I listen to them. And being sensitive helps me be compassionate towards people. Because I'm paying attention to your mood, right? Mm -hmm. So I literally in that moment challenged my own dialogue, my own judgment about what that means. And it shifted everything for me, you know? So we can do that within ourselves. We don't have to accept the precepts we've been taught. We don't have to accept the dialogue that was handed to us. We can learn to talk back to our our own thoughts about the feelings that we're having. Mm -hmm. Because the the thing that's interesting about life is we have feelings, which we cannot help. Again, emotions are expressions of human experiences. But then we have these thoughts that we attach to the feelings 
a lot of times these thoughts are judgmental. Your anger is bad. Don't be sad. It makes people uncomfortable. Don't be sensitive or don't cry. It's weak. Little boys don't cry. You're a princess. Little girls are princesses. We don't act mean. Like there's all these, these thoughts dialogue that we attach to these emotions and the problem with the dialogue is that it's distracting because i really believe that our emotions carry a message and that message is there to help enhance our world and to teach us about what we need or what we want in the moment in order to live at peace so we listen to our own messages we accept our own emotions and then by osmosis we tend to do it to others in particular our children are the most vulnerable and the most susceptible because they're constantly around us and they depend on us for so much. And that's how we elevate parenting, by the way. Which is by our own practice. Yeah. Conscious parenting. I don't know if I want to say this, but I feel like it's the next evolutionary process in parenting. Like what we understand parenting could become. It's this whole like conscious parenting, you know, my mom said something interesting to me. I remember she said, God, being a parent, I would hate to be a parent nowadays. And I said, why? And she said, because <laughs> she said, because growing up when I, you know, my mom had five kids and you know, growing up, we just had to make sure you guys were fed and you were bathed <laughs> and that you went to school. Yeah, She's like, now you guys as parents have to make sure like, is, you know, are you formula fed or breastfed? Is it organic non-GMO or, you know, is it whatever? What's screen time like? What are you, how are you stimulating your child's emotional development? How are you teaching them compassion and this and empathy? And she's like, you know, it's just so different. But for me, when she said that, even though, you know, I thought it was kind of funny, I really thought about the fact that she's right in many ways. Our understanding of psychology, neuroplasticity, how the brain works, how things develop, we do understand that, you know, nature and nurture work together and it's important to understand their relationship. And it is important to be conscious about the ways in which we parent our children and the ways in which we parent ourselves. Because I've worked with a lot of people and oftentimes the way to heal from a traumatic childhood or a traumatic parenting experience is to become the type of parent that you needed when you were little. You know, it's, it's interesting because when you tell me about, I've heard, I've heard very similar comments from other parents, you know, it was so much easier 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We didn't have to think about that. And like you said, you're right. You didn't have to think about it. And the conscious repercussions on the child are still there as if the decision had been made. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. I, you know, I've thought a lot about that. And also on, on Instagram, I had put up a few questions and had people uh, respond and I had asked a question, what is it that you wish your parents had done differently? And so many people's response to what they wish they had done differently stems exactly from that mindset and mentality of, well, we only have to keep them alive. Right. 
you know, I mean, granted the people who follow me and the people who listen to this podcast are around our age, you know, between like Mm -hmm. late twenties to mid forties. So Mm -hmm. I've Mm -hmm. got that window and we all have semi-similar upbringings in that regard. And I had answers that they would feel free to make mistakes and then have been able to discuss the mistakes with their parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, automatically a reaction to it. It was, I wish my parents had been more open to growth or ideas different from their own. Like these are things that when you're only focused, okay, we're just going to feed them, clothe them, make sure that they're sleeping and going to school. You are by default making these other decisions as well. Of course. And I'm just, I want to, I want to like reiterate this point because I think it's really important. Our parents society, popular knowledge at the time did not espouse these things, right? Like when you think of history, you have to look at it through a historical lens. Mm -hmm. And part of the historical lens is understanding what was the knowledge available to them at that Mm -hmm. time? What did they understand about parenting? What were the quote unquote medical or psychological like understandings at the time right how were they parented in so many of course parented so much better than their their parents did you know there was a growth you know of course you know it takes a while generationally for things to shift and change and so you know I one of the things that I do when I work with parents is we do at some point, I say we are going to have to kind of acknowledge and confront a little bit of your parenting blueprint, right? What did you inherit from your parents? But I make it very clear that this is by no means a judgment against their parents. Their parents, like I said earlier, we all have reasons for why we do the things that we yeah. do. And we have to look at their parent at that what their parents did through the lens of this is the information that they were given at this time, right? So during this time frame, society large and large, you know, was, you know, the man up, like even if the children should be seen and not heard, give children an inch and they'll take a mile. Like there's all of these colloquialisms, Mm -hmm. like around the idea that good kids are quiet and well-mannered. They do well in school. They sit there with their hands on their lap. And so that's really what our parents were in essence trying to reproduce. Just good kids who know how to follow directions. And now even one of the first things that I go through in my groups is we talk about the difference between obedience and cooperation. Mm. And so the idea before was like the highest level what you want your child to be is obedient. Correct. And then psychology tells us, well, actually, obedience is based out of fear. And that's the primitive reptilian part of the brain. And you want your child to think with their prefrontal lobe. So you actually want your child to choose cooperation. Because obedience will mean that you might have an adult or a member of society that will just do something even if it's immoral, Mm -hmm. just because they're told to do it. Think about Nazi soldiers and exterminating a group of people just because their religion was different. Why did you do it? I was told to do it. So we've learned in a society 
that that type of level of obedience, when you think of the ramifications as an adult, is not the highest level of thinking. Mm -hmm. You actually want cooperation, which is not based out of fear, like obedience is, but based out of respect. I choose to do this because I respect you or it feels right morally or it's the right thing to do or because I love you as opposed to I do this even if it's wrong, but that's how I'm trained and I'm afraid of you. So I'm going to do it anyways. Right. I do believe that so much of that installation, uh, I don't know, that's probably not the right word, but whatever, of obedience also stems so much from our religious upbringings and our religious beliefs that say, if you don't do A, then B, C, D won't happen or will happen, right? So if you don't do things this way, you get eternal hellfire and damnation, right? Right. You don't accept things this particular way. And so obedience then becomes a way to achieve goodness. You know, if you are obedient, then now you are good. Right. You know, and so a lot of us were taught that, you know, like like you're saying. And so when, and if you have, and if you're teaching cooperation, you're also teaching children to be free thinkers. Yeah. And I think that that challenges a lot in our world. Yes. And I think, Two things I want to say about that. One is, you know, with the most probably revolutionary concept that I learned about parenting was for me personally, it is that we, we can teach discipline children without punitive measures. Mm -hmm. Like we don't need punishment to learn. And that was huge for me. I just never thought of that in that concept. And I even thought about, and I don't mean to compare, to use this as an example, but I think about dogs. If you kick the dog every time it brought you your newspaper in the morning, your dog will cease to bring you your newspaper. We learned about it in the animal world. Positive reinforcement it's such a powerful motivator. I think too, when it comes to that strict level of obedience, you have to do this and there's a lot of fear that's attached to it. And this might just be because I'm a little, a little bit of a history geek. My undergrad degree was actually, it was a double major and it was an American history. Nice. So I think a lot, I think a lot about things historically. And one of the things I did uh, when I was in graduate school for research was I looked at the origins of punishment. When did we decide and how did we decide one day that it's okay, I might be 120 pounds bigger than you, but if you make me angry, I can harm you. You and I can physically fight and you can call the police and have me arrested, but I can, within reason, I guess, as long as it's not, I can spank my child, hit my child, whatever, even if they're one years of age, 20 pounds, 15 pounds, and whatever that's so i was trying to understand where did they come from there has to be some history of origin behind that and so i studied a lot different primitive cultures and kind of the evolution of society and different things and so all of that to say i do understand at some point 
using a historical lens at some point in history, if I felt there was somebody raiding my village and I needed you to be quiet and you were two years old, I might pinch you because if I didn't pinch you to shut you up, we could all be killed. Do you know what I mean? I understand kind of, if we talk about the evolution of society, because I do think our society evolves. I always laugh when people say things are getting worse. And I'm like, have you never studied history? Pederasty and Roman Empire. My mom has a mole on her nose. And the, during the Salem witch trials, she could have been burned at the stake because a mole could have meant that she was a witch. We have evolved people. I think at some time and place, there was a reason. It doesn't justify it, but I'm just ex- explaining why these things made sense. But as we evolve and we understand human nature better, they no longer make any sense. We don't need punishment to teach people. Yeah. I think that even just just having grown up with a religious, religious upbringing, the majority of cases of corporal punishment are justified with the Bible verse of spare the rod. Right. Yeah. And, you know, without turning this into like a religious or theological, whatever, like discussion too much. The whole spare the rod, spoil the child. There is a, there, there was a a rabbi who I really love who kind of got into that entire teaching and what it really was alluding to and the translation of it and what it meant. And I can tell you with confidence that it did not mean for you to beat your child with a rod, by the way, a rod. Correct. That is like, like now that would be even in today's terms, if you were to take that literally, that's child abuse. Yeah. That is child abuse. And I'm a mandated reporter, obviously. So every year I have to do for the state of Florida, little webinar, class or whatever on what constitutes child abuse. And it's supposed to be. And you're actually in the state of Florida, you're only supposed to use your hand, by the way, and open, not cl- never closed. And it's never supposed to be in the face. It's a long thing. But anyways, even if you were to take that literally, you could be arrested, by the yeah. way, in the state of Florida. So we definitely don't want to advocate for that. And I mean, oh, Jesus Christ. That is, that is an entire discussion in and of itself. It really is. And as a disclaimer, I do not believe that almost anything in the Bible is to be taken literally. And so therefore I completely understand and am a hundred percent with you on the interpretation of the rabbi, (laughs) you know? Um, Yeah. Because I mean, that's just where I stand. I think that very little of the Bible is meant to be taken literally. Right. You know? So as a disclaimer, no, I don't believe the Bible verse means that. I don't believe most Bible verses mean what we say they mean. And right. within that, of course, not never advocating for child abuse, literally just saying that some people will justify corporal punishment with a misguided right. use of a Bible verse. Yeah, absolutely. And for the most still part, be... in the United States, people take the Bible literally. Right, right. You know, focus on the family, James Dobson. I don't know if you've Uh heard of him, but people love him. And some of his parenting, I mean, 
and I don't know if he's revised it since then, but you know, he talked about how mild spankings can occur between the ages of 15 months to 19 months. You can start at that point, but you're talking about a one-year-old, let's be real, you know? And the thing that's so in particularly, and again, I don't know if he's changed it, but I know at one point that was a teaching of his. And especially within certain Christian communities, focus on the family is everything, you know? The problem with that in particular is that a child's behavior, what we would consider misbehavior or bad behavior, right? And yeah, um, she's using air quotes because I know you guys can't see her. Oh yeah, that's right. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> what we would call bad behavior, and I was using air quotes, before the age of two and a half is based on exploration and creativity mm-hmm. and learning. So especially advocating for harming a child physically before the age of two and a half in which they don't even understand what they're doing is wrong is incredibly harmful. Yes. And, and confusing. They might know that you get angry. They can see your reaction when you tell them not to touch something, but they don't know the consequence of touching it and what that means. They don't see it as a bad thing yet. So they just see it a let's say a glass object. They don't, they're not thinking I shouldn't touch it because it can break and it costs a lot of money and I can hurt myself and get stitches and go to the hospital. Right. They just know that it's pretty and sparkly and they are literally wired for exploration. Mm -hmm. And so they can see you get angry But they don't think your anger is justified, by the way. They think you're crazy. That's why they cry and get mad at you. Well, they don't even understand, really. They don't understand understand it. Scary for them. It's fear-inducing. And it teaches them to use the reptilian part of their brain, which is, you know, that fight-or-flight response. It actually Mm -hmm. trains them in that. What you really want to do is teach your children to use their prefrontal lobes. But that's a whole other conversation for another day. But in particular, that one really bothers me because of the young age recommendation. Yes. And at that point, that could be harmful for a child's development. Right. I've seen brain scans of children that were severely abused, a lot of corporal punishment. And it you see gray, you see matter in the brain that's just, like there's nothing there. It's really scary. Mm-hmm. I would strongly advise against that. In particular, It's not illegal to spank. Mm -hmm. It could be considered abusive based on how the state of Florida defines it. It's not illegal. So that's at your discretion, obviously. But if you choose to do that, please don't do it before the age of three, please. Yeah. And full disclaimer, I don't believe in that it's a effective uh, way to discipline at all. Discipline, actually, talking about biblical stuff, discipline comes from the Latin word disciples, which means to guide and teach. Mm -hmm. So discipline is often used synonymously with the word punishment, Mm -hmm. but they are completely different things. I discipline my children. I use natural consequences. Sometimes I've used logical consequences. You know, I tell parents, make their behavior the bad guy, not you. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to be the bad guy by harming or victimizing my child. I want them to focus on their behavior and what was wrong about it. And so I use consequences to discipline them. 
I've never had to use a punishment at all. Yeah. There's so much there. Oh my God. I I know. What does non-punitive discipline look like as children get older? Let's say that someone is new to this. They've been becoming more self-aware. They are really concerned about creating really compassionate, empathetic children. I think most of us are. And now they're listening to this and their kids are in their teen years. Yeah. Pretend I'm a mother of a teenager or of a couple of teenagers. What can you teach me, even though you don't personally have teenage children, about disciplining a teenage child? Okay. So I want to address that what right there you just said really quickly i have a male gynecologist he has never been pregnant he has never delivered a child himself vaginally you know and my father saw a cardiologist who never had a heart attack right so i just want to say i understand your logic but i'm this is from a this is from an expertise. This is what, you know, like this perspective is different because this is something that I'm trained in. Right. So I want you to rest assured that even though I don't have any teenagers, I'm pretty confident, at least from an educational perspective on answering this question. So teenage moms, just remember, teenager right. moms, not teenage moms. Though if you're a teenage mom, oh, okay. we welcome you. Or teenage mom is fine too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> your mom of teenagers, just remember that you're, like she says, your gyno may be a man, but you still trust him. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> so tell us, okay. what, how, do we, how so, do we handle life with a teenager? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's so funny though, because... My groups are divided. Some of my groups, some of the work I do, it's ages zero to four, five to 11. And then I've done work with 12 to 17 in particular, like that age range. I will tell you, it's funny that you had that, you know, entire context or disclaimer or whatever, because the easiest group to use natural consequences with are teenagers. Like the easiest. Just because it's easy to find consequences for their behavior. I'll give you an example. Let's say, and this actually, I had a client and this same exact scenario happened. Her 13-year-old daughter is at a friend's house. The mom calls and says, I just want you to know I overheard the conversation And your daughter was saying a lot of inappropriate things. She was using language that we don't condone in our household. And I just want you to be aware of that. So the mom, my client was Rose. What do I do? I want to do X, Y, and Z, whatever. And I said, well, let's think of a natural consequence. What's a consequence in this scenario? So I always tell parents the way you the way you develop a consequence is often by using empathy. So you put yourself in your child's shoes and you imagine that that happened to you. So for instance, I'll use you and I as an example, Vanessa. Mm -hmm. If I go to your home, there's a certain level of respect I'm going to convey in your household. It is a privilege to be in somebody else's house. It's a privilege to be invited into your doors, to sit on your couch, to engage with you. If I am disrespectful at all to the, to the environment that you've created in your home, 
whether it's cursing, yelling, smoking, or drinking, I fully expect for you to tell me to leave. And furthermore, I understand that now I have lost the privilege of being invited to your home. So for me, I told her, you, the natural consequence for your daughter in that moment is, hey, it's a privilege for you to be invited to so-and-so's house. Mm -hmm. And if you don't respect their house rules on what they consider is appropriate or inappropriate, and you use harmful or hurtful language, speech, or behavior, you have lost the privilege of going into their home. Now, maybe, maybe we can reevaluate this in a week or two. Maybe you've thought about your behavior. Maybe you've learned since then, and we can ask the mother if, if you promise to respect the rules of this household, household if you can go back. But for now, your behavior has indicated that you are not mature enough yet to be in this person's home. And that, for me, it's all about teaching your child a skill set. Because that's really the goal of discipline. Is to if, for me, if my children do something that is unbecoming of them, I see that crisis or that problem as a moment, as an opportunity for me to teach them something. Because that means that maybe there's a skill that they do not have yet. Consequences are really easy, easier than any other type of punishment, to be honest with you. Would it be appropriate to have your child call the girl's mother and apologize for their of behavior? Of course. Okay. Of course. That's called restitution. I'm a huge fan of restitution. If there is any way that your child can right a wrong, I think it's a great thing for them to be able to do. I know that even as an adult, I use restitution all the time. Remember, we're raising adults. Yep. So you can think of it in terms of that. As an adult, what is a skill set that my child needs in this moment that will help her in her adult life? Because being able to right a wrong is really important. Sometimes, though, I will tell you, because I've, had, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've had the parents that will tell me my child will misbehave and then right away be like, I'll write a letter, I'll clean it up. You know, they, don't, they, they like want to skip the consequence and go straight to restitution. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And so, you know, it's a case by case basis, but you do have to parent your kids a little differently sometimes. Like, I know my oldest restitution is really all he needs he's genuinely sorry for stuff yeah. that he does yeah that he's not supposed to you see it in his face and he wants to so badly right the wrong and he won't do it again so with my oldest restitution is the go-to okay let's fix it let's correct it you know i tell my kids you can be messy proverbially but you got to learn how to clean it up you know what I mean? I don't mean make a real mess because that drives me crazy. I mean like life. You can make mistakes, yes. but we got to figure out how to clean it up. Now, my middle child, he, on the other hand, <laughs> has been known to, on occasion, use restitution as a manipulative tactic to get out of the consequence. <laughs> and so with him... I have to make sure that there's some level of consequence. Mm. And, and then once the consequence is doled out appropriately, once the constitution is dealt with, then we talk about restitution afterwards. Uh, right, once the consequence is dealt with. 
Right. What did I say? The Constitution? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. What does it look like when you have a child who, who seems to be genuinely remorseful every time, but the behavior is not changing when you go straight to restitution? How do you handle right. that? So one thing before I answer that entirely, I always think about, I never speed ever. One time I was listening to a really good song. My adrenaline was pumping <laughs> and I went 10 miles over the speed limit. Cop pulled me over. I was genuinely remorseful. I never speed. He let me go. And it was yeah. okay. It's okay for kids to be human and make mistakes. And I, at least within my own household, I have found that if we just talk about behavior, I rarely have to give consequences, honestly, because we just talk and we learn and we try to do better. Now, if your child is committing the same infraction over and over again and doesn't seem to be learning, then that is a stage in the, this is going to get a little bit technical. So in the discipline process, there are three stages. The first one is called behavior management. The second one is called behavior encouragement. And the third one is called behavior modification. Now consequences fall in the third stage of discipline. So the first one is behavior management. Management. Okay. And what does that look like, practically speaking? So behavior management is what's going on environmentally. As the adult, is there anything that I can change to avoid my child from encountering this conflict? So for instance, let's say you give your child an iPad mm -hmm. and you set parameters around the iPad. Let's say you set a time limit for two hours a day. This may or may not be a true story. <laughs> Let's say you set a time limit for two hours a day. And this one child who's very cunning figured out your passcode. So he extends the time limit per day, right? So the first week you lose the iPad. Having an iPad is a privilege. You didn't treat it respectfully. I take it away. We'll try again. The next week, he does the same thing. Now you think, well, what's the consequence, girl? You already used, you already took away the iPad. What's the consequence? So for me, behavior modification, which is the third step, didn't work. So I go to behavior management and I say, you know what? I'm thinking at this moment that using the iPad is a privilege that's, that you're not mature enough to handle. And I don't want you to get in trouble. I don't like taking things away from you. So from now on, you're going to use the iPad and I'm going to be right next to you. You can only use it when you're with me. And I can't give it to you for two hours a day because I don't have two hours a day to sit there with you on the iPad. So I'm going to give you the iPad for 30 minutes a day and I'm going to sit next to you. And when those 30 minutes are up, I'm going to come and get it back. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So behavior management is to avoid that conflict. I decided that I was going to change 
the the freedom that I gave my child. Does that make Got any it. sense? Yes. So that he can avoid getting in trouble. Another clear example would be, let's say, you know that every time you go to Publix, your child has a temper tantrum because it takes too long. So before you deal with the consequence, look at behavior management. What can I do differently? So maybe, you know, I'll go to Publix when... The, the other partner's home and he can watch the child. Or maybe I'll take my child to Publix and I'll only do half of the grocery shopping. Or maybe I'll take my child to Publix and if they behave well, they can get a cookie afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So it's, it's the first level of discipline. So in the original example you used, if your child doesn't seem to be learning from the consequence, then I would go to the first level of discipline, which is called behavior management. And I would just figure out environmentally if there's anything I need to shift so that my child can avoid that pitfall. And what was the second level? So the second level is what we call behavior encouragement. That's positive reinforcement. So that's where that's where you use rewards to incentivize, motivate behavior. It's basically what you use to keep your child on the right track. So almost like behavior management is like the bubble wrap. You're bubble wrapping the situation so that nobody can get hurt. Yeah. And I really appreciate your example where you talked about how you can kind of go through all of them. And Mm -hmm. then it might just be that your kid needs behavior management in that particular Right. It's not, a, it's not a fixed hierarchy. Instead, it's whatever is going to work for this particular situation. Perhaps, ideally, I will be honest with you, uh-huh. ideally, you want to start with behavior management. So ideally, okay. you want to say, environmentally, is this expectation too big for my child? Is, mm. is this behavior motivated by a lack of sleep? or being hungry. (laughs) I want to write all of this down. Not enough play. Or ideally, you want to say, as the adult, if I look at the environment, is there anything that I could be responsible for? And if I enact some type of change, so I could, my child's behaving this way, let me shove a cookie in his mouth. He's probably hungry. And then the behavior stops. And then the next step, which is behavior encouragement, is where you use the reinforcers to motivate the good behavior. And then the third step is really if the first two steps aren't working. Got then it. you got to there needs to be some type of consequence because they're not understanding. Okay. This now, I do, this is a brief disclaimer. What I'm talking about is very technical. I hope we didn't lose people then. This is a parenting strategy, yes. a discipline technique that takes me probably, I spent three weeks on it. Mm. So like a three hour class. So it's yeah. a nine hour kind of in course instruction that I give when I work with parents. But that's basically the gist of it. I feel like so many of us are really looking for tangible, applicable advice and I don't feel like that was too technical at all. Great, great. That okay, that was very applicable, very practical because so much of what we've been talking about has been very cerebral and very esoteric. 
you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, I agree. and so I think it's, it's helpful to have to kind of just bring that down into everyday practical application right. for, for the people that are listening now, they're like, Oh, okay. So that's how all of the philosophy behind this is actually put into practice. Yeah, I agree. Because Especially historically, we've been taught that the first place you go to is the consequence, is the punitive measure. Yes. Conscious parenting, conscious discipline, the new wave of parenting as we understand it, is that we don't have to go to the punitive measure right away. We can just start with the teaching, the awareness, the education, teaching our kids, looking at our environment, how that might affect behavior, and kind of making our kids conscious of the choices and the consequences so that behavior is the bad guy and not the parent. Because let me tell you something right now. If you did something to upset me and you're my child and I'm your parent and I immediately called you a name hit you, yelled at you, violated you in some way, shape, or form where you feel like a victim, the last thing you will be thinking about is your bad behavior. You will be thinking about my bad behavior as a parent. You will be thinking about the way that I hit you, the way that I yelled at you, the way that I slammed the door on you. And you wouldn't even have time to process what you did that was wrong. And so we can really get in the way of our kids, Mm -hmm. of their learning, if we just rely on punishment. Mm -hmm. And one more thing I kind of want to say about that, that I just think is important is, as parents, we have this parenting guilt that is built in us, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what we do, we're going to find something to feel guilty about whether it's we're giving our children enough time in the day, whether the time is quality, whether we're buying enough, doing enough, being enough, it's going to be there. And with so much guilt that we all feel, the last thing I want for parents to feel guilty about is the way in which they discipline their children. Mm -hmm. I don't want that to have to be one more thing that you add to the pile of things that you're already guilty about. Mm-hmm. And there is a different way. There is a better way in conscious parenting where you can teach your kids, you can discipline them in a way that's empowering, mm-hmm. that doesn't allow them to feel like a victim, and that helps them understand their own behavior and feel powerful where they can make choices to be better, to do better, and to do things differently. And we don't have to get in the way of that. Thank you for that. Because I think a lot of us do already carry so much. Yes, we do. Burden. Yeah. So in order to end, because I could keep talking with you about this for hours. Are you familiar with Dr. Shafali? Yes, of course. Okay. So her book, would you recommend that? Yes, of course. Okay. I have to tell you a personal story about that. When she came on the scene, I'll, I'll share. This is really vulnerable for me and I'll share this. So I mentioned that I did this work 12 years ago and somewhere in the middle of this work, I thought that I had discovered conscious parenting and I even had a book title for it. And it was something like, it was cheesy now that I think about it, but a decade ago it wasn't, but it was something to the effect of parenting is about the parent 
parents. Like that was the theme of it. Everything that we know about parenting has nothing to do at all with the child, but it has to do with us, who we are, our reaction to things, our evolution as human beings, all this stuff, whatever. And I did some research about it. I had a uh, preliminary draft and I was so excited and I thought this would revolutionize parenting and then I saw Dr. Shivali on on Oprah and she was talking about so much of the similar stuff that I thought I had discovered of course I didn't but it was really hard for me for a long time so yes I really recommend her I love her, even though in the beginning I didn't. I was very jealous, and that's okay because you remember emotions yes. are expressions of an experience. Yes. And I, you know, and I felt like for a long time it kind of, I, you know, I just whatever. But I'm glad that I ended up seeing it as a catalyst for the work that I'm doing. And I thought if she's able to bring this into the mainstream and people are able to talk about it, then it will only enhance the work that I do because now it's out there for everybody to hear. Well, I, on a side note then, I encourage you to still write that book because your voice matters and you have a different voice than she does. And you know what? I'll just end on that. So you just have to write a book for everyone to hear what Rose has to say about all this parenting stuff. Thank you so much again, Rose, for being on the podcast with me and for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and all your expertise and education. I am grateful to you and I look forward to uh, meeting up in person uh, for some coffee soon. 